0: Hey, this is Jordan Van Trump of Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Farm Tank. Today, I'm going to be having a conversation with Carter Williams. We're going to be talking about things ranging from his experiences at MIT that I think are filled with lessons everyone can learn from, great tips for being an entrepreneur, uh, do's and don'ts of your own business, what to do and what not to do, what people like him are looking out for. Um, We're also going to be talking about interesting things in his life, like making bombs at Boeing, replicating sailing trips just like Shackleton, and amazing views of Haley's Comet. I'm going to take a second to give a quick bio of Carter. He's worked his whole life trying to be innovative. He started his career as a young engineer at McDonnell Douglas. Uh, After graduating from MIT, he also got a master's degree. After that he went on to work for Boeing and eventually started a thing called Boeing Ventures. Um, Carter has gained tons of knowledge throughout his life to become a successful entrepreneur and venture investor. I think this is going to be a great show. Carter can share a lot of his life's insights with everyone and hopefully teach everyone something to uh, make them more successful in their near future. With that, I'm going to welcome Carter to the show. It's a pleasure having you.
1: Hi, Thank you.
0: There's so many places we can start with you today, Carter but I'm hoping to humanize the almighty Carter Williams for all our listeners a bit. I haven't met many people who have gone to MIT, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know anyone who's gone to MIT, but I'm wanting to know exactly why MIT. Or tell our listeners what made you want to go there.
1: When I was in 8th or ninth grade as a school trip, we ended up going up to Boston, and I decided at that point I wanted to go to school in Boston at some point. Uh, and then also I'd always thought about engineering, ended up going to college in engineering and, and so the nexus was I, I, uh, liked Boston as a city to go to school and later on in my career was preparing to go to business school and, and MIT landed in the, landed as the opportunity. Um I had also been working early at that point on uh something called Lean Manufacturing. Uh It was a, a new concept that now people talk about a lot, Six Sigma Lean. At that point, nobody had really been talking about it, and I ended up with a fellowship with the Air Force working to support MIT and their research um, sort of later in my career at McDonnell Douglas and as I sort of was transitioning to business school. So I I'd spent a couple of years working with MIT on research and was attracted to it.
0: What stopped you from going to other top schools in the country like Harvard?
1: Yeah, at the time I applied when I was applying to grad school, I applied to Harvard, MIT, uh Stanford, uh Columbia, all those sorts of things. I did not get in the first time. Um I'm not positive I've applied three times, but um I was persistent and uh you know, it's always good to be persistent in life. Um and But I was persistent and and got in.
0: I know people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get an education like you got from MIT. What's the best piece of advice you could tell our listeners you received from MIT from your time spent there? key thing I
1: learned at MIT, this is a really interesting way to approach life, is up until that point I had approached debate or people with other opinions as you don't understand And when you're in a room full of people that all got into MIT, that had four O's and whatever on GMATs, and you got to walk in with the presumption that you may disagree with the person that you're having a debate with, but it's not because they're dumb. And if you sort of approach the world, ever since then I've approached the world as the person with the opposing opinion might know more than I do, and uh, that sort of changes your viewpoint. in in understanding a problem.
0: Yeah, Carter, I totally agree with you. I think that's a great piece of advice personally. I never understood why people don't take the same approach you do like that. I think there's always something to learn from somebody when doing everything in life. I believe I'm incredibly blessed to uh, grow up with my father, uh, but at the same time, I think I learned from both sides because he's lived in both uh, situations. I think he was on the opposite side growing up, and he's more on your side now, which I think it's uh, good to learn from both sides.
1: Well, and it's just a it just shifts the discussion. If you just assume the other person's right and you are wrong, and then look at a problem that way or look at an opportunity that way, uh, it could be in the end that you are right. But but it just sort of starts the conversation or it starts your intellectual process um, from a healthier perspective.
0: I think this is all great information, but uh, let's go ahead and fast forward a little bit in your life. You're out of college. You have a degree at MIT and a master's degree now. You probably think you're on top of the world. You got your job at McDonnell Douglas, things are going great. I just graduated school, so I'm seeing the same situation happen with people today, like my friends, and they're uh, very satisfied in their life. This wasn't enough for you, though. You go on to be considered one of the top engineers in the company, then you get this job with Boeing. I know you're really feeling good at this point, but you keep grinding. The journey continues four, li- four years later when you start the company Boeing Ventures. Could you possibly tell our listeners what drove you to keep pushing further and further when you could have easily been satisfied at any moment in your career?
1: Yeah, I think I was always – I was never really a career person. Um, yeah, you know, I never was um, – hey, I want to be CEO, or I want to head a division. I was really always looking for something that was challenging, um, and and I was always looking for something that hadn't been done. And it wasn't that I was it hadn't been done, hey, I want to be really successful at it. It was, if it hasn't been done, I just want to solve that problem.
0: Yeah, Carter, I think you're uh, really rolling here, but can you go ahead and expand on uh, when that thought process exactly started for you?
1: I mean, it goes back to even when I was in grade school that I would go down to the local library if I wanted to learn something at the time we didn't have Wikipedia. <laughs> so if I wanted to learn something, I'd go down to the, the the I'd walk down to the library and spend 4 hours in the stacks reading articles from journals and magazines to try to understand something. And so I'd say across the board, uh, my my career has really been one focused on just being inquisitive about things I don't know. I uh, and I've had the pleasure throughout my career of um, having the opportunity to always go do something different, uh, or making those opportunities to do something different. I'd, I'd say that virtually every single one of my jobs, I. Uh, sort of created mm-hmm. um you know i started mcdonald douglas and said hey here's an opportunity to do lean six sigma nobody knew what it was i defined it then i had that job i when i was graduating from grad school i was gonna go to McKinsey or something and become a consultant and the the uh, senior vice president of Boeing i had, uh, had, had worked for before from mcdonald douglas had worked for before Said, "Hey, i'd like you to come back and you know how can I get you to come back? And I said, well, if I could manage technology planning, that would be great. And so they created that job. And so I think in each time I've always sort of wanted to do something and created the opportunity really out of inquisitiveness, not, not glory.
0: So we learned you worked with Boeing, and Boeing is an amazing company that creates some unbelievable things. Do you think you could share something interesting you experienced while working at Boeing that's available to the public? Uh, I don't need to get you in trouble revealing any classified information.
1: Well, there are a couple of just random things that both I was involved in. Well, I remember when we – the first Gulf War, we needed to figure out how to take out Saddam Hussein – and we had been working on a, a new launch system for a bomb, a very complex bomb on the F-15. And we decided to build what now is a bunker buster. So Saddam Hussein was underground and we needed to find him and we had like nine months. And so we had to build a bunker buster. Um, Nobody had built one before, and really a Bunker Buster is kinetic, and then it has an explosive, so kinetic means it has to have a lot of mass. And an F-15 can carry, at that time, it was sort of the largest vehicle we could operate on. It uh, could carry, like, I think maybe 25,000 pounds of ordnance, and so we designed the concept of a Bunker Buster, and we needed something really, really, really heavy, and so we remembered that there were old battleship cannons. Um, the big battleship things were made of Water Lead Arsenal up in Troy, New York and we and that they used to be on display. Nobody had built something that heavy. They were on display rusting outside the Water Lead arsenal and so we went and got one of those and turned it down and made the barrel of a of a, a bomb that weighed about probably about maybe nineteen thousand pounds or so. Um and then strapped it onto the, and put some ordnance in it, the idea of six ordnance in it, and, and dive bomb it with an F-15, uh, against the target. Um nobody had really dive bombed it, and we didn't have GPS really working at the time. This, this was like 19, I can't remember, 1990, 1991. Um, and we tested it at, at, uh, Edwards Air Force Base, and dropped it without an ordinance, just the, uh, the mass of the bomb, and, uh, damn thing went, I don't know, dug down like 200 feet and still couldn't find it. Um, wow. It had so much kinetic energy Uh and then it was deployed. What happened from there, I'm not exactly positive. In terms of deployment, that's like, sort of moves into the classified realm, but um, that was all done quick. I mean, it was like, hey, we should do this. Let's build this bomb. We've got an active war going on. Let's con- contrive it, build it, test it, deploy it. And it was done in maybe six months. Um I can't remember, it was a while ago, so again nineteen ninety one, but but mm-hmm. that was that was just sort of a bunch of smart uh, hundreds of those kinds of story on the classified realm, but that's one that was sort of public.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I was looking to hear right there. I, one thing I'll say on that is uh you know, today's world I run into people that don't
1: you know Oh, if I want to build the iPhone, I got to be Steve Jobs and this like this mystical distance, char- distant character. I mean, one cool thing that we did at Boeing, McDonald's Douglas, and Boeing, and sort of in that realm is, you know, I've seen a lot of innovation. Is you know, if you think you can do it, you can probably do it. It just requires incredible hard work. Of hey, let's apply basic physics and let's think through this problem and let's not imagine that there's any barrier. One thing I'd say about younger people they run into is they they have this coolness about the result, but they don't realize they can do it and The practical reality is Steve Jobs was a human, the guy who went to the moon was a human I mean everything is driven by a human who one day is sitting alone in a room with an idea, and they persevere, and then there are two people, and then there are four people, and then there are fifteen people, and then there are a hundred people and and then they make it happen and and every single individual has the capacity to do that.
0: Yeah, I was actually watching a video yesterday my dad sent me. It was a speech given by Art Williams. He was preaching about just do it. He says the difference between winners and losers is the winners find a way to get the job done while losers always are making excuses for themselves.
1: Yeah. And it and it gets back to just core principles. It doesn't matter that you don't have to have a diversity program and a and a, a HR program and I mean just a little bit of just plain grit of you know, let's just make this happen and find people who are equally passionate about it, and let's fail 15 times. You know, uh, Edison said that innovation is innovation is uh, 97% perspiration. So Edison did a pretty good job inventing cool stuff. So
0: yeah, I would totally agree with you on that statement. But uh, let's step away from your career a bit. My dad has told me a lot about how you love to sail. Can you expand on this for me? Maybe tell our listeners about your top sailing trips.
1: Top sailing trips. So I've I've done a lot of offshore sailing. I grew up sailing. You know, when I was 15, 16, I was, you know, on boats delivering them on Long Island Sound. And, you know, my friends, all of us just sort of hung around boats of different sorts. And um, it was all sort of carefree from a standpoint nowadays. You got to have safety and adults and, and a whole bunch of stuff like that. But I've... Um, offshore I'd sailed from Newport to Bermuda, up through the the coasts. I, I, one of the great trips I ever took was when Haley's Comet was here in uh, maybe oh eighty nine. We sailed from Sabá Island to St. John's Island. Whenever you charter boats in the Caribbean, they, nobody ever wants you to sail at night, and because they're it's challenging, a lot of people are fools. But our family did that, and I I remember we we persuaded the Charter people let us do it, and we made that sail, and you could see Haley. It was the perfect time and place to see Haley's Comet. So you're at sea, no other light. When you're out that far, there's no other ambient light. And Haley's Comet looked like this giant baseball in the sky. It just was, I can still remember the picture that clearly.
0: That must have really been a scene. Uh, something else I want to ask you is, what's the best thing you've learned from sailing?
1: So sailing is a... Tremendous environment in which you're, you're alone, you're, you're with your, your crowd and, and you don't really, it's, you gotta be resourceful and things go wrong and you've gotta plan ahead and it's just sort of an integration that, of lots of interesting challenges that um there's no one else there to help you if um something goes wrong and, and so it's always been a fun environment and then just simply sailing and you're using the power of the wind. No motors no electricity and you can you can operate um but i'm very active still in sailing lots of different ways i grew up and benefited from the woman who taught my lorna hibbard who taught my father how to sail when he was a child who was a friend of my grandparents taught me how to sail big boats and also had a certain ethic about safety and and such and so it it Sailing is a great sport in which old and young can come together, and, and it reminds you that you can learn a lot from older people. Um, it's a sport that people don't have to be equally athletic to be good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a, it's just a fun thing to do.
0: Yeah. So does uh, sailing run in your family?
1: Uh, yeah, my grandmother loved sailing. My grandfather hated it. My father, at age 13, with Bobby Semple, was out sailing off of Harbor Beach, Michigan, and uh, ripped the sail somehow and got stuck at sea on a small boat overnight, and it became one of the headline news at the time, headline news, because the Coast Guard was trying to find them. So this was back in the day when there was no GPS, so this would have been 1949 maybe. They were stuck at sea, and, and uh, stuck at sea on Lake Erie, I guess, uh, and uh, not Lake Erie, um, but everyone was terrified, and the newspapers were saying these two boys had been lost at sea, and um, so that was my father's experience uh, early, but he he raced a lot. Um, he ended up actually having a heart attack and dying at it, the sort of bad side of it, but uh, he did that at sea. Um. and uh, so yes it's always been in our family but it's varied it was sort of fun when my grandmother in opposition to my grandfather would want to go sailing and my father and I would go out together
0: you've told us a lot of great sailing stories but I'm really intrigued to know what your ultimate sailing trip is
1: yeah so my dream I I'm a big uh, fan of Shackleton so Shackleton is a great entrepreneurial story too so Shackleton was made the major attempt to try to hit the North Pole, the South Pole, rather, um, before anybody else. And so Shackleton, there's a great story by Shackleton when he was trying to build his crew uh the London Times where he said, you know, looking for people that want to make the journey of a lifetime safe return, return unlikely. They all <laughs> went down to go to the South Pole, and the, the fishermen came in and said, you know, this is the worst winter ever, don't go to sea, and they all hopped on their boat, and they went off, and so headed to the South Pole, and ended up getting stuck in the ice, and for many days, sort of waiting for the ice pack to break up, but it didn't, and so it ultimately destroyed their boat, and they got on the lifeboats, and they and they moved themselves off to Elephant Island, which is a small, teeny island with not much there, and so they couldn't survive there. And he took a, a subset of that and uh, sailed many miles to South Georgia Island. And it's one of the most harrowing trips ever in terms of he was in a 30, 40-foot skiff um, in 40-knot winds for two weeks um, using a sextant. Uh, With cloudy weather, so intermittent, and he hit South George Island, and I can't recall how many nautical miles away it was, but it was a distance, obviously, because it took about a couple weeks, Um, and he made it. And so there's a great story there of was he an idiot or was he an excellent, excellent sailor? Um, sometimes when we talk about entrepreneurs, uh, there's a great podcast by the guy who started uh, Cliff Bar where he says he's a climber and he always likes to climb at the sharp end of the rope. That's the guy at the front. Because even though it's the riskiest position, you're the most focused at that point. And entrepreneurship is often about being laser-focused. You're in a risky position, but you're laser-focused on progress. And it sort of heightens your awareness. And so, to me, the Shackleton story is one of extreme risk, but very few other people could have been so good as to succeed in that environment and that Shackleton was focused on what mattered. And so I would love to redo his trip with exactly the gear that he did.
0: Wow. Yeah. That so, be Interesting.
1: And see whether I've got the same capability. I, I might have a support boat nearby, so I don't sink and die. <laughs> but uh, so maybe I'll be checking on that front. But um, yeah, so that, that uh, it just feels like the sailing and entrepreneurship and pursuing something different all sort of come together in that in that opportunity. So that's somewhere on my bucket
0: list. Yeah, that was a very cool story. That's something I've never heard before. Um we were talking a little bit earlier this week. Do you think you could tell me a bit about uh, the story behind Sonny, the kid you took sailing with you?
1: Oh, so this is uh, – he's a kid up in uh, – I ended up, after one success with a startup, had enough wings that I bought a house up in Harbor Springs, Michigan, and started sailing up there. And i, I we've got no children and I grew up with kids always on boats, but now the world sort of changed where you don't put kids in risky positions on offshore sailing boats. And so, but I was there with no kids and needed crew for my boat, and so I locally just sort of attracted all the young kids, um know, I guess in a Pied Piper kind of way, I uh, to sail with me. And I a Sonny walk on our boat. Oh, somewhere along the way, it, a, it looked like all the other kids. It's just sort of a preppy, well-off environment but Sonny was a, a local kid and uh had a couple challenges um growing up in the local environment and uh became part of my crew and has sailed with me ever since. Um and in that experience we as a young as a boat with a bunch of kids on board um won a bunch of local sailing events, beat out all the old people uh which was a demonstration that, you know, if you got a boat with a bunch of kids under eighteen you can if they're trained well, they can perform at any level. Uh, it's funny, through that experience, I think, uh, learned, had an opportunity to focus and apply himself and so it sort of changed him both with my involvement and a, another gentleman's involvement. He sort of got a lot more focused on school and so went from uh being sort of back of the pack to front of the pack in high school and, and got a scholarship to University of Michigan um and has sort of gotten himself in a much better position and i think he's now he's almost finished up with michigan and and uh looking at his career and working in engineering and and excited about things ahead and uh so the discipline of sailing i remember the day he walked on the boat all the kids at that age all seemed to have add and he seemed to have ocd on a boat it's good to have people who are paying attention to details and um he just used the environment to, to really sort of absorb in as much responsibility as he could. Um, and so it's just been a really exciting thing to see someone sort of consume life um, through sailing and and get himself ahead and, and really uh, grow.
0: Sounds like Sonny is very grateful to know someone like you and has learned a lot from you. Uh, I would love to be in a position like that, and uh, maybe that's something we could do sometime, take a little trip sailing, I feel like I could learn a lot from it. But, uh, at this point in the podcast, I think it's a good time to jump back into your work. I want to talk about what you do now. Let's, uh, talk to our listeners about the iSelect Fund and why you left Boeing to, uh, start this particular fund.
1: Yeah, so, uh, iSelect is focused on, is a venture fund, and we focus on early stage opportunities. When I was at Boeing, I managed a lot of the R&D investment decision and you know got all the money in the world what are the thousands of technologies Boeing should invest in to protect its future for the next 15 years and in the world of startups everybody's sort of focused on what's going on in Silicon Valley Um, when we go back to like the 50s we were innovating across the country and new businesses were creating across the country and so what we recognize by Select is there's not enough capital outside of Silicon Valley to back Ag Tech startups in St. Louis or animal healthcare care start animal care startups in Kansas City or um logistics startups in Memphis. And so there are a lot of other smart people in the country. Um so they had times the capital. I had been involved in a startup in the St. Louis area where we ended up successfully selling to Johnson Controls, but we did that in part because the only capital we could get to go to the next stage was to move the company to Silicon Valley because that's where the capital was. And so, I select is built around the idea that Silicon Valley is good at media and technology and entertainment, um, but they're no good at healthcare. They're no good at AgTech, tech, there are about 60 under industries they don't know, and all those people in the rest of the country. And so why don't we build a firm that takes the best concepts of venture capital from Silicon Valley, takes my experience from Boeing in terms of long-term technology planning and broad, monumental kinds of changes and systematic long-term thinking, take some of that, and then take the very diverse skill base across the country of really smart people that maybe are coming out of a Monsanto or coming out of, uh you know, local institutions and pull that all together and um, drive more innovation. When we look at, you know, how do we get more growth in the country? You know, for a long time people have said you can't get above 2% growth. And there's been a discussion about how to get the 4% GDP growth. At 4% GDP growth, we pay down the deficit. We can have healthcare, a whole bunch of things that we can have. But how do we get there persistently? And the reality is, is that growth in the United States comes from entrepreneurs. It comes from smart local people acting as entrepreneurs, operating under the principles of liberty, under being able to make their own decisions, seeing opportunities, and creating business. And we've done a lot of things in our country over the last 20, 30 years that have sort of uh, slowed that growth. Um, And so what I select is focused on is, hey, there's about a $12 billion annual shortfall of early-stage innovation. If we can fuel that innovation, if we can bring capital from the capital markets into those markets, we can drive more innovation. And through driving more innovation, we can create new industries. We can take some existing industries that haven't had a lot of venture and, and enhance them and create them and make them more competitive. We can leverage the innovative nature. The one the United States has over every other place on the face of the planet is the greatest, most innovative culture um, there is, bar none. But the challenge is getting capital to them. And so what I select is focused on is is... Pulling that capital in and fueling those people. So we concentrate a lot on finding those people, a lot on diligence to make sure that, you know, we've, that their business plans are good and they're right and focused and then partnering with other capital providers and, um, working with, we work a lot on ag tech and healthcare and, you know, the other thing a startup really needs is a customer. You know, they might need money but they need customers and so we've been working a lot with Van Trump report in terms of reaching out to the ag community and sort of saying, Hey, you can buy things from Big Co. but here are other technologies coming online from Little Co uh that might provide you better advantage and, and so let's increase the awareness of those things. Um and you make a decision as a customer and but you know, startups like to have customers. And so it's a big thing. You know, hey, just go out and figure out how to raise twelve billion dollars more a year for startups. Um well it sort of seems like a big thing but it's not. You know, at Boeing I sort of was involved in managing about three billion a year of investment, so I figure now ten years later trying to figure out how to get twelve billion doesn't seem like that big a thing. Um but iSelect like is focused on really that problem of, you know, how to really drive a lot more attention at the On the startups in places other than Silicon Valley, and so we work a lot with um, individual investors that agree that there's opportunity there. We work with a lot of successful entrepreneurs that built businesses and now are sort of semi-retired and and uh, still want to be in the game. They might be 50-60 and and they're bored uh, and they'd like to. So we have a lot of those people work with us, and we'd always like to see more of those. And then we look work with entrepreneurs that are doing something a little different. Um, we're still pretty rigorous about making sure that they're well-planned, but uh, but we're eager to look across the country at things like that. Um, and it's really exciting. I mean, we see great, brilliant people working really hard, and um, Shackleton's all uh, show up all the time. Uh, so it's, I've got the greatest job in the world. You can go to the news every night and see all the pessimism, or you can come to our daily meetings, meeting with entrepreneurs, and see all the optimism.
0: Sounds like the iSelect Fund is on top of their game and really making some big plays in the uh, startup space. I clearly can tell that you know a lot about business and best of practices in business. So could you uh, help our listeners learn a little bit more about what are some things you look for in a business that really attracts you?
1: Well, the management that the team has domain expertise knows what they're doing um they don't have to be experts in terms of they don't have to be the guy who per company public but we look for that they've got an understanding expertise around the market and a history of knowing something about that market uh, we look for people that have got a very direct customer orientation i you know classically I ask this question of people, and I shouldn't spill the beans on it, but one of my first questions I ask people is, what does every startup need? And they almost invariably say money, and the answer is customers. They need customers, and they need customers for two reasons. They need customers because customers provide revenue, and revenue is non-dilutive. But the other thing is customers provide is insight. Customers are the people who are trying to solve a problem themselves, and so you can be wicked smart and think you understand the world, But when you spend some time in the, the, uh, you you need these hundred things in this product to make it work. But when you get to a customer, customer says, look, I only need ten things. And I can do my job better and I'll buy your product if it has these ten things. And so the smartest, best entrepreneurs, when they're trying to make a decision about what to do next, the complex problem, how do I grow my business, the smartest ones will say, let's go get a, let's go talk to the customer and see what they think. The customer will help me answer solve solve this give me the answer to this problem, and so we look for strong teams who have a customer orientation, and then certainly we look in areas where there there's a lot of opportunity. We talk a lot about optionality so that things like agriculture have not been digitized um, we still need to eat. So there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of demand on the food system and increasing demand as places like China go from being poor to rich. They want to stop eating rice and they want to eat pigs and pigs and uh, and uh, steaks. And those all consume food. Those all themselves consume food. And so we pay attention to, you know, those kinds of market shifts. Um, we're also... But we're also concerned about large trends and how to drive innovation. So like in healthcare, people say, oh, healthcare costs go up. You know, innovation is ultimately deflationary. We should be able to develop healthcare solutions that are cheaper if they're more innovative. You know, your cell phone's a lot cheaper. Why can't healthcare be cheaper? Um, So we also pay attention to trends like that. So it's a matter of strong team, customer orientation, operating in a world where they're There are strong megatrends in favor of opportunity.
0: I know you have a lot of insight on this, clearly, and I know you have information on the other side of things. So to help our listeners not make the same mistakes as others have made in the past that you've seen, uh, what do you see in companies that concern you or make you start to worry when you uh, are hearing their pitch? I would make sure all you listeners out there are listening to this segment because Carter does this every day and sees hundreds of companies a year and you're not gonna get more experience from someone in your lifetime probably. I really think it could make a huge difference in your company and make a huge impact on yourself, so I'd make sure to listen.
1: Arrogance is probably the worst thing we see. Um, They really don't know what they're doing, so they come in and they say, we're gonna come in with the best, smartest new technology for solving food safety, and nobody on the team has any experience whatsoever other than that they won three awards at some incubator um so those are those are terribly uninteresting to me um because of practical realities you got, you really do have to actually have some domain expertise and things um, We love young teams broadly for their enthusiasm, but it really you know the evidence is that Somebody who's 40 years old, who's operated around a business for a while, tends to be the best kind of entrepreneur in terms of performance. So they're a little bit of those kind of demographics. We've been blessed, though, in terms of, uh, you know, we look at probably 1,500 companies a year, and I'd say that uh, we've been blessed that almost every one of those 1,500 have merit. They uh, we We seem not to run into a whole bunch of foolish startups.
0: So let's touch on this real quick. I've been investing my own money for the past few years, and I know I'm still young and have a lot to learn in the investing world, but what I'm really wanting to know from you is why should I pick Carter Williams and the ISelect Fund to invest my money in?
1: Well, I think that everybody should be diversified, and so there's a certain amount of a portfolio that should be focused on on a long-term high-growth opportunity. And so we talk about uh there's a technical term a geeky term if you're if you're going to business school at MIT you talk about something called illiquidity liquidity premium that is hey if you stick money aside into long-term alpha and don't take it out um what you can find if it's done correctly is you can find that you get good non-correlated returns so doesn't matter what the stock market does it doesn't matter what the global markets do Over the long term, the thing delivers 20-30%. And so we, we are singularly focused on delivering just that one thing. We're going to deliver long term, high alpha, high gains, measured over seven years, not one, not a quarter, and we're going to do it I, in a way that's insensitive to whoever's president and, and trade wars, global markets. So we're going to focus on those things. Um, and so as an investor, should have some illiquidity premium in your portfolio allocation. And and we seek to be the best because that's all we do. It, produces secondary benefits that as those things continue to progress you get both the return and you get information from the standpoint as you start to see what the future trends are and they're battle tested trends it's not hey I think this will happen it's actually here companies have gone into the field um, you know when we make investments we expect 2 out of 10 will be successful uh, we learn more from the failures than we do the successes and then we Take that and, and reinvest that knowledge in the other things that we do. So you should invest in us if you're, if you're looking for a long-term alpha. Uh, at your point, at your point in your age and career, it may be hard for you to, to do that because sometimes cash flow is more important. Um, yeah. but Don't we're your a,
0: minimum investment
1: and everything. So our minimum, one, you have to typically be an accredited investor, which means you have to have a million net worth or more. And our minimum is about $50,000 in most cases. Uh, And that is to be sure that we properly diversify people. And it is very appealing to people in their 40s and their 50s that are saying, you know, I'm not sure what's going on in the stock market. I want to think about my long-term retirement. Um, I want to think out 10, 15 years in terms of how am I going to protect myself. And so a lot of our investors are thinking about That's sort of their their concern. Uh, and so a lot of investors invest through their IRA in us. Um, and they tend to be people who are generally well off that have a little bit of extra capital to make a, an investment decision. And And as I say, are more focused very, very long term.
0: Yeah, I know I'm uh, not there in my career yet as an investor, but uh, something I definitely look forward to investing in the future. Um, moving on from that. What are some businesses in your fund that you believe really have a chance of changing the future of agriculture during the next three to five year span you think
1: yeah, so we uh, a big thing we see in agriculture is going on is we've we've had a commodity market that's been fantastic in terms of reducing the cost of food and and as much as it gets you know Monsanto gets criticized it has reduced the cost of calories for the world um we and that's good, and it's made its run. And you, you tend to see things in 30-, 40-year business cycles, and it's sort of made its run on that. GMO, better corn. What we see now happening is um, that same type of experience needs to be broadened and, and made available to the rest of the world. they just calorie production. But then the other thing is we're starting to see specialization of food. So there's an opportunity in which people want to have better food, whether, you know, organic or something, and they, they're they looking for those qualities, and we're starting to see some convergence of health and food and an understanding of that from a science principle, not just randomness. So we are focused on uh what we call sort of contract farming, in a sense. You know, hey, the farmer is making, is producing for more directly for like PepsiCo or Or directly for the NCPG company, or they're directly supplying Whole Foods, or Mars, or something like that. So that's a trend that we're seeing, that we're paying attention to. There are about 3,000 edible crops. There are about 30 that are regularly used, and only about seven have really had any kind of real breeding genomics program put to them. And so the areas that we're paying attention to is one first core principle is let's build the next generation platform for breeding, GMO and, and uh, genetics. And so we've invested in Benson Hill, which is a leader in working with seed companies. And a seed company can come to them and say, look, I need a, a new corn seed, but I'm in a GMO risk area, so I need to do I need to breed it with the best traits. Or someone will come to them and say, hey, we want to build a new industrial crop and produce produce it at scale, and we'd like to use CRISPR gene editing to do it to increase the productivity. And so Benson Hill provides, it's sort of like the Intel, Intel inside. They provide the, the new genomics for for seed companies um, to address changing markets. But we are also focused on things like probiotics in, uh, in contrast to fertilizer, um, to help enhance soil health uh, and increase, increase yield and productivity from sort of that side from an input standpoint, and we're focused on uh, technologies that will help the CPG companies more directly work with farmers so that and that helps in a few different ways. CPG companies can build better food products that, that sort of address the millennial class that's looking for higher quality food um so there's that demand and and on the other side farmers can get higher margins because they're working with they're working more directly with cpg companies that can price differentiate and so it it sort of solves the cycle of farmers you know selling to the grain elevator um and getting commoditized and pressured down in price where if they're building a slightly premium crop and selling directly to PepsiCo that they can they can get 20% more profit um, on their crop, and we expect over time that that the markets are going to shift, or you have contract farming and commodity, but maybe we're going to see more of a shift, and then additionally in that shift, we're going to start seeing more foods, you're going to start going away from just being 30 principal crops to maybe 40, 50, 60 principal crops as as we start to see a, a changing landscape of economics and commoditization and, and people looking for more diversity in their food system.
0: Good deal. Um, that's about all the questions I have for you today. But before we wrap things up, I'd love for you to tell our listeners uh one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Carter Williams.
1: Oh, wow, that's pretty profound. I don't... I. I think always... My we used to get into family arguments in the car. You remember those, you know? You, yeah. And all of a sudden, brothers, and and we'd always suck my mother into it.
0: Somehow, my suck mother would day. get into
1: the debate, and my father would say, "The conversation is over. What are we gonna do next?" But he had a sort of unique capability to sort of say, "Okay, <laughs> what are we gonna do now?" And I I think that in all cases, that's Whenever I've been in trouble, uh, taking that shift in thinking, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of George Soros, but, uh, there's a story about one day he's playing tennis with his buddy and there was some big trade that was going to go on and he said, okay, I'm going to do this trade and his, and it ended up being that that was the wrong trade. And so when his buddy caught up with him the next weekend to play tennis, he's like, boy, you must have lost 200 million. It's like, "No, nope, I changed my mind. We didn't do that trade. So, You know, I think the two of those things, it's also been profound in my thinking. is is like don't get stuck in a hole. Don't worry about how you got there. Focus on what's next. And uh, leverage the people around you and work with the people around you to just solve that problem.
0: I think that's some really good advice and something I'll definitely keep in mind and use in life moving forward, Carter. I hope our listeners do the same as well. I think it's uh, really been a huge pleasure to chat with you this past hour. I have personally learned a lot, and I hope our listeners got the same results I did today. I also want to mention Carter will be featured on Farm Tank from time to time, providing challenging questions for the companies I choose to feature. I think Carter has a ton of experience doing this and will help us dig a lot deeper into these companies so uh, everybody can learn a lot more about them. That concludes our Farm Tank session today. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. One more thing before I go, I want to give you guys a little quote from Steve Jobs. Your time on this earth is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life.